Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast covering documentary film. I'm Tom Powers. On this episode, we bring you our third annual preview of the Sundance Film Festival. Last year in our festival preview, we told you about films like Three Identical Strangers, Shirkers, and RBG. Now I'm here to share exclusive clips of what to expect in 2019. Some of these films have distribution in place, while others will be looking to sell at the festival. Let's start with a figure who promises to be one of the biggest stars at Sundance, newly elected Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We launched this campaign because in the absence of anyone giving a clear voice on the moral issues of our time, then it is up to us to voice them. At her election party in November, she looked back to five months earlier when she had her first victory in the Democratic primary. I think about oftentimes that incredible day on June 26th when despite no attention, despite no media fanfare, despite the fact that no one wanted to get to, for us to get the word out on what was going on, we were able to organize everyday people knocking on our neighbor's door, and despite being outspent $4 million, 18 or 13 to 1, despite the fact that we were running against a 10-term incumbent, despite the fact that it was her first time running for office, despite the fact that we didn't have the money, despite the fact that I'm working class, despite all those things, we won. The story of how Ocasio-Cortez organized her way to victory is told in the documentary Knock Down the House. The director, Rachel Lears, previously co-directed The Hand That Feeds, about immigrant workers organizing a union in a Manhattan deli. That film won several awards, including the Audience Prize at the 2014 Doc NYC Festival. After the election of Donald Trump, Lears got inspired to document a wave of working-class women who were deciding to run for office. One of them was Ocasio-Cortez. If I was like a normal, rational person, I would have dropped out of this race a long time ago. Knock Down the House picks up with Ocasio-Cortez when she still has a day job as a bartender. People don't see waitresses as having a quote-unquote real job. But my experience in hospitality has prepared me so well for this race. I'm used to being on my feet 18 hours a day. I'm used to receiving a lot of heat. I'm used to people trying to make me feel bad. They call it working class for a reason, because you are working nonstop. Americans aren't asking for a lot. They're just asking to get by and they're just asking for politicians to be brave enough to help them get by. For all the attention that Ocasio-Cortez has gained in recent months, this film captures her at that special time when she was still unknown. We gain insight into how much family means to her and how she stays motivated by the memory of her late father. From Ocasio-Cortez as a progressive hero 
Let's move to our next film, profiling her political opposite, right-wing ideologue Steve Bannon. The film is called The Brink. Director Allison Clayman got access to Bannon not long after he was fired from Trump's White House. Here's Bannon. The White House, there's literally no glamour to that job. There's no glamour to the job at all. I, I hated every second I was there. You know, you go to a, a church or a temple or a mosque or something like that, you can get the vibe of all the prayers and the, and the, and, you know, the mantras and just the energy, the positive energy that, that these places, you know, have. Um, and then you go into like a Jersey strip club at like one o'clock on a Saturday afternoon and you get the vibe of like, there's a lot of bad stuff that's happening, right? Just the, the vibes of sacred and the profane, right? The White House, there's got, I'm telling you, the West Wing has got a bad karma to it. It just had a bad feel. They would say, because you were doing evil stuff. I actually thought I was doing the Lord's work. Bannon subsequently lost his job at the right-wing website Breitbart and lost his key financial backers, the Mercers. But as we see in The Brink, he didn't slow down. Director Clayman, who's best known for her film I Weiwei, Never Sorry, follows Bannon as he jets around Europe, spreading his ideology of anti-immigrant nationalism to right-wing politicians in the UK, France, and Italy. This is the second documentary about Bannon in the past six months. The first was American Dharma by Errol Morris that played at the Venice, Toronto, and New York film festivals. Morris's film takes a different approach of a one-on-one -on -one conversation that traces Bannon's history. Clayman takes an observational approach unfolding in the present. They are complementary projects, each shedding light in a different way. Morse's film has yet to reach wider distribution. Clayman's film, The Brink, will be released in theaters this spring from Magnolia. Now we move to another key figure in Donald Trump's world, in the film, Where's My Roy Cohn? The title comes from a line that Trump uttered last year when he was beset with scandals and investigations. Roy Cohn was a notorious political fixer whose career spanned from Joseph McCarthy in the 50s to Trump in the 70s. Cohn died in 1986. Where's My Roy Cohn is directed by Matt Turnauer, who was at Sundance last year with his film Studio 54. Cohn comes up in the Studio 54 story He's the lawyer who tried to fix the nightclub owner's legal problems, but wound up making them worse. In this new film, Turnauer spans Roy Cohn's whole career and seeks to understand his psychology. He was a closeted gay man who didn't hesitate to smear opponents with homophobic attacks. Cohn met Trump in the early 70s when Trump buildings were being investigated for prejudice against black applicants. Cohn describes their meeting. I met him at a New York uh, club called Le Club. And we were seated at tables next to each other. We were introduced. He was 23 years old then. He said, listen, he said, I've spent two days with these establishment law firms about a case we have. It was a civil rights case or something. And they were all telling us, give up, do this, sign a decree, and all of that. He says, I followed your career. And you seem you're a little bit crazy like I am. And, uh, you stand up to the establishment. Can I come see you? And I said, sure. 
Turnour combines a rich trove of archival footage with new interviews, including another mentor of Trump, Roger Stone. Roy would always be for an offensive strategy. Those are the rules of the war. Uh, you don't fight on the other guy's ground. You define what the debate is going to be about. I think Donald learned that from Roy. I learned that from Roy. Where's My Roy Cohn is a vital history to understand the bully streak that runs through American politics. Before we move on to other topics, I'll highlight one more film that speaks strongly to politics today. The film is called American Factory, directed by Stephen Bognar and Julia Reichart, who are based in Ohio. In 2009, they made the documentary short, The Last Truck, Closing of a GM Plant that was emblematic of the long, sad history of industrial decline in the Midwest. Their new film, American Factory, is about that same Ohio plant that was reopened in 2016 by the Chinese company Fuyao to manufacture glass. At first, the reopening of the factory brings hope to the community because it's going to create hundreds of jobs. Here's an American manager at the plant speaking to a room of Chinese employees of Fuyao. The plant looks great. These people are coming here to see something that they never in their lifetime thought would happen. You have given hope and you have given life to a community that was desolate. This is one of the greatest projects in the history of the United States. So be proud and most importantly, have fun. American Factory was filmed over two and a half years and captures the culture clash between the Chinese and the Americans in their expectations of how a factory should be run. The initial hopes that the factory would lift up the economy give way to frustrations that it doesn't restore the standard of living the workers once knew. Here's a factory worker named Shania. At General Motors, I was making $29 and some change an hour. At Fuyao, I make twelve eighty four. Back then, if my kids wanted a pair of new gym shoes, I could just go get them. I can't just do that now. We lost our home. We lost a vehicle. I can't think of another documentary that had so much access to both factory workers and management. Bognar and Reichert make us aware of the human toll that manufacturing takes. Here is Bobby, a factory veteran. The conditions are not favorable. Doing the same thing over and over again. That wears on you. Body, mind. Your soul, it's, sometimes you think, why am I doing this? You think about whether you have the stamina and the will to do this type of job. There are no easy answers in American Factory. It reminds me of the complexity of Barbara Koppel's Oscar-winning documentary, American Dream, about a Midwest union battle. Both films derive their power from the immense dedication of the filmmakers to follow their stories over a long period of time. 
The editor, Lindsay Utz, has accomplished a remarkable job of weaving multiple character arcs. The film has the backing of participant media and is sure to receive strong attention throughout the year. Now let's talk about some of the biographical portraits in the Sundance lineup. They include films about Miles Davis, Toni Morrison, Dr. Ruth Westheimer, and 60 Minutes journalist Mike Wallace. We start with Miles Davis, Birth of the Cool. Director Stanley Nelson has a distinguished career making documentaries about black historical figures. Four years ago, he had a major work with the Black Panthers, Vanguard of the Revolution where he demonstrated an ability to navigate highly contentious subject matter. The life of Miles Davis encompasses many artistic highs and personal lows. Nelson does justice to both. He uses actor Carl Lumley to give voice to Davis's words. Music has always been like a curse with me. I've always felt driven to play it. It's the first thing in my life, go to bed thinking about it and wake up thinking about it. It's always there. It comes before everything. The film's subtitle, Birth of the Cool, refers to one of Miles Davis's best-known albums, but it also stands for what Davis meant to the culture when that album came out in 1957. Here's musicologist Tammy Kernodal. I think the darkness of Miles Davis's skin Instead of seeing that as a liability, he saw that as an asset. It was very different from anything that was projected on television or in movies at that time. Miles turned that into something cool, something desirable. Miles Davis' Birth of the Cool is backed by PBS's American Masters series. The same group is behind Toni Morrison, The Pieces I Am about the Nobel Prize-winning author of novels like Sula and Beloved. Director Timothy Greenfield Sanders previously made a trilogy of documentaries called The Blacklist, interviewing esteemed black public figures. He draws upon his aesthetics as a portrait photographer to frame Morrison against a plain backdrop speaking directly to camera. My grandfather bragged all the time that he had read the Bible through five times from cover to cover. I thought, why does he keep reading that book? Then I realized there weren't any other books. And it was illegal in his life to read. And it was illegal for white people to teach black kids to read. So it was a revolutionary thing. The film traces how Morrison started out as a book editor in publishing and kept secret from her colleagues that she was writing her own novels. She was also raising two children as a single mother. Her first book, The Bluest Eye, was unapologetically a black novel written for a black audience. The assumption is that the reader is a white person. And that troubled me. They were never talking to me. Even Frederick Douglass, he's not talking to me. I can feel him holding back. And I understand that. 
because the people supporting him were abolitionists, white people. And sometimes he even says it. These things too terrible to relate, like rape. He didn't talk about it. Same thing I felt was true with Ralph Ellison. I felt was true with so many great writers. Invisible man. Invisible to whom? Morrison never fails to be engaging, and it's a privilege to spend time in her company. Our next figure has been ubiquitous in popular culture for several decades, but future generations may not understand her significance. The film begins with this introduction. Alexa, who is Dr. Ruth Westheimer? Ruth Westheimer, better known as Dr. Ruth, is a German-born Jewish immigrant to the United States who became a fixture in late-night television and a major pop culture figure as a sex therapist, media personality, and author. Rafi, did you hear? She knows who I am. <laughs> the film's title is Ask Dr. Ruth, directed by Ryan White. He traces her extraordinary life as a German Jew who escaped the Nazis as a child and wound up breaking taboos by speaking frankly about sexual topics on American radio and television. Now at 90 years old, she has lost none of her spunk or her frankness. Here's a scene where she meets with her childhood boyfriend, Walter Nothman. We were two lonely kids at an age when hormones start flowing. And we learned by... Uh, experimenting. Experimenting. When we were teenagers, there was somebody who said that I showed you my breasts. And I... <laughs> but there was some rumor going, and I was horrified. I knew Switzerland was surrounded by Nazis, and if I would have been kicked out of Haydn, where would I be? There was no place on earth for me. So we didn't have sex, but we hugged and we kissed. And guess what, come here, tell you something. I can still remember the taste of those kisses. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Ask Dr. Ruth is backed by Hulu and will be released this spring by Magnolia. The final biographical portrait I'll mention is called Mike Wallace is Here. It's about the 60 Minutes reporter known for his confrontational interviews. Good evening, I'm Mike Wallace. A nation's press is a good yardstick of a nation's health. Take a look at the history of any nation which has lost its freedoms and you'll find that the men who grabbed the power also had to crush the free press. Tonight, we'll discuss some of the problems of our own fourth estate. Israeli director Avi Belkin makes his English language debut with this film. It's constructed with five decades worth of footage of Wallace, including never before seen outtakes from the 60 Minutes archive. It's a tremendous feat by editor Billy McMillan, who's previously worked with Amy Berg and James Longley. In addition to being a personal history of Mike Wallace, the film also serves as a history of American television journalism throughout his career. Now I want to talk about two documentaries on widely covered scandals. 
The first is Untouchable, about Harvey Weinstein's history of sexual harassment and abuse. Director Ursula McFarlane conducts multiple new interviews with Weinstein's former colleagues who look back in shame and his accusers, such as actress Paz de la Huerta. You put on a happy face, but inside you're dying. It made me feel like I had to reclaim my sexuality all over again. So I wanted to do photo shoots where I could feel beautiful and take it back, take back what I believe he stole from me. Some of the other women might look at me and think something's wrong with her, like Harvey could use that against her or something. I wanted to feel desirable again, people knowing that this pig had violated me, that this monster had been inside me. Untouchable should have special resonance at Sundance. The festival's rise was inextricably bound with Harvey Weinstein. He famously bought the film Sex, Lies, and Videotape at Sundance in 1989 to distribute with his company Miramax. That sale was a turning point for the Sundance mystique as a place where independent directors could launch their careers. Now that Weinstein's name has become synonymous for abusing power, the film Untouchable strives to give a context for how he got away with it for so long. The second film that reframes a story in the news comes from Oscar-winning director Alex Gibney. It's called The Inventor, Out for Blood in Silicon Valley. Gibney looks at the rise and fall of the medical technology company Theranos and its leader, Elizabeth Holmes. She captured the attention of investors and the public with her vision to create a simple blood testing device that with the mere prick of a finger could deliver medical information in a revolutionary way. Here is Holmes speaking at a 2014 TED Med talk. I believe the individual is the answer to the challenges of healthcare. But we can't engage the individual in changing outcomes unless individuals have access to the information they need to do so. The right to protect the health and well-being of every person, of those we love, is a basic human right. The problem with Holmes's vision, as Gibney documents, is that it was based on a fantasy. The technology didn't exist. Gibney interviews several ex-employees of Theranos who describe what was really going on. Here's a technician who describes problems with the blood testing equipment. You're handling a lot of fluid in the machine. Things got blood spilled all over them and got gunky. Some of the donors that we had were, you know, just people off the street who need money. And I imagine that, you know, there probably was a fair amount of hepatitis and, and things like that. 
and the device would freeze up in the middle of running a test, and then I would have to reach in there with my hand. There were needles within the device that could puncture skin, and there's reagents and blood and everything spilling all over the place. Blood that's just sitting there in the bottom of the vessel, evaporating into the air in the room. It was a mess inside. Pieces of the device would literally fall off in the middle of testing. Centrifuges exploding inside of it and, <laughs> and things like that. Obviously, I didn't want anybody to actually see what was going on in there. As the company leader, Elizabeth Holmes managed to hide the backroom disasters and continued to excite prominent backers to her cause. Former Secretary of State George Schultz was a true believer in Holmes. He helped get his grandson Tyler a job at Theranos, but Tyler eventually caught on to the duplicity of the company and talked to the press. He describes how Theranos reacted. Yeah, that's when lawyers became a really big part of my life. They were threatening to sue me for violating my non-disclosure agreement for giving up trade secrets. Many times I had written notices to appear in court and at the last minute they would cancel it. Overall, my parents spent between four hundred and $500,000 in legal fees. It was getting to the point where you know, we needed to find money somewhere, so they, they said that they would sell their house to keep fighting this legal battle. The film is full of jaw-dropping moments and has a larger theme about irrational exuberance in American business. The inventor, Out for Blood in Silicon Valley, will be coming to HBO this spring. Environmental themes are prominent in two beautifully made films. The first is from director and cinematographer Richard Lodkani. He previously collaborated on The Ivory Game, about elephant poaching in Africa, that can be seen on Netflix. Lodkani's new film, is Sea of Shadows, about the fight to save a porpoise-like sea mammal, the vaquita. Today, there are fewer than 15 vaquitas left. Their natural habitat is Mexico's Gulf of California, but fishermen's nets are killing off the vaquita in pursuit of a different kind of fish, the totoba. The bladder of the totoba is highly sought in China, where it's believed to boost fertility. That creates an illegal trade that gives rise to dangerous black market forces. The film follows activists, journalists, and marine specialists who hope to save the vaquita by ending the illegal fishing of Totoba. One of the activists is Andrea Crosta from the NGO Wildlife Crime. At first, when you look at this matter from the outside, you think it's just an environmental issue. But then the more you dig in, the more you realize that there are huge criminal implications behind this problem. When you have the involvement of Chinese traffickers, the involvement of the drug cartels, and you can imagine, you need much more than, than, a, than a conservation plan. You know, you, know, you need much more than that. Like he did in the film The Ivory Game, Richard Lodkani injects Sea of Shadows with elements of an adventure story. He follows the crew of a Sea Shepherd vessel that patrols the Gulf of Mexico trying to stop illegal fishermen. Here is Sea Shepherd drone pilot Jack Hutton. We want no nets in the ocean, and our tactic right now is to pull them. 
Anyone who says that just one person can't make a difference, just look at what we've done here. All these whales that have been saved, all these dolphins and sea lions. 30 people can save literally thousands of lives here. Careful, careful. Sea of Shadows makes exquisite use of ocean photography. The other nature-based film concentrates on land. It's called Tigerland from Oscar-winning director Ross Kaufman. The film moves between two regions where tigers are endangered, in Russia's Far East and in Central India. There are people who work in tiger conservation around the world, risk their lives on a daily basis. They're the reason we still have wild tigers. That's Debbie Banks from the Environmental Investigation Agency. Tigerland reflects on the tension over how to instill love and respect for an animal that most people will never see in the wild. Bitu Segal, the founder of Sanctuary Asia, describes the larger effects of conservation. Project Tiger basically was a project to protect forests. If you save the forest, you save the water sources and all the biodiversity, and in the process you save human beings. One of the most engaging characters in Tigerland is the Russian tiger specialist Pavel Fomenko. His charming Russian dialogue is difficult to capture on this English language podcast, but he's a character you'll remember long after watching the film. Now I want to highlight three Sundance documentaries already set for theatrical release in 2019. The first film is Maiden, about a group of women sailors who broke a gender barrier in the late 1980s when they were the first all-female team to compete in the Whitbread Round the World race. British director Alex Holmes premiered the film last year at the Toronto International Film Festival, where it was acquired for distribution by Sony Pictures Classics, the company known for films like Searching for Sugar Man and Maria Baikalis. Maiden is a high-seas adventure that has a lot to say about the folly of underestimating women. The film uses footage shot during the 1980s race, coupled with new interviews with crew members. Here is sailor Jenny Mundy talking about the double standard of the press who covered the women's team differently than the men. So we're always digging for stories on, well, who's boyfriend, girlfriend? Are you lesbians? You're sleeping around? Or surely you're not getting on that well? Bunch of women on a boat that size. There must be a lot of squabbles. What about the crew? Uh, a bunch of girls. How'd you all get on? Remarkably well. You never saw them ask the guys those questions. They would be asked about tactics, challenges, you know, sail, sensible sporting questions. We almost never got asked those questions. Why? You can look for Maiden in theaters this summer. Filmmaker Todd Douglas Miller was last at Sundance with his paleontologist documentary, Dinosaur 13. Now he returns with a stunning big screen depiction of man's first trip to the moon, Apollo 11. Tranquility Base here, the Eagle has landed. The film was covered in a recent Vanity Fair article that detailed the painstaking process that Miller and his team undertook to restore NASA footage and audio. Miller is mindful of past documentaries on Apollo missions, including Moonwalk One and For All Mankind. His film is dedicated to the directors of those two films. Miller brings his own vitality to the telling of this story. Apollo 11 will be released in theaters by Neon, 
the company that brought out three identical strangers last year. Another neon release, playing in Sundance's spotlight section, is The Biggest Little Farm. Director John Chester and his wife Molly traded their urban lives in Los Angeles to buy a farm outside the city. Narrating the film, Chester describes their goals. We promised each other that we'd build a life of purpose together. And there was no question for Molly that we'd both find plenty of purpose on a farm. But this farm would have orchards, gardens, animals. Not just any farm. We're talking like something out of a children's book. We would grow apricots, peaches, plums, nectar, cherries, kumquats, guava, lime. Her dream was literally to grow everything she could possibly cook with. This vegetable garden, it wouldn't be just any vegetable We would garden. have flowers, herbs, heirloom And vegetables. we'd do all of this in perfect harmony with nature. Rosemary, oregano, basil. Like a traditional farm from the past. Dill, fennel, strawberry, raspberry, kale, broccoli. Sounded like a meaningful life. But our reality was so far away from anything like a farm. Chester documents eight years as he and Molly tried to live up to their mission of biodiversity. This is a documentary accessible to all ages about people trying to put their ideals into action. So I've just told you about 15 of the Sundance documentaries to look out for. There are other films that I ran out of time to include, but I want to squeeze in a quick mention of four more. The untitled Amazing Jonathan is ostensibly about the gonzo magician who is known for his humor and gross-out stunts. The use of the word untitled isn't temporary, that's the film's final title, The Untitled Amazing Jonathan. And it indicates how the film is self-reflective about the very act of documentary making. It's something you have to see to understand. Another film that's very much about the act of storytelling is Cold Case Hammerschold by the director Mads Brueger. In his previous films, The Red Chapel and The Ambassador, Brueger has played with the role of performance in his documentaries. This new work investigates the mysterious 1961 plane crash of UN Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld. It meets the high expectations set by Brueger's previous films. Sundance veteran Amy Berg returns with the film This Is Personal, in which she looks at two figures in the Women's March that rose up in response to Donald Trump. One of the women profiled in the film is Tamika Mallory, who's been at the center of controversy as a leader of the Women's March. This film is a nuanced exploration of her journey. Lastly, for a documentary injected with humor, look out for Penny Lane's Hail Satan, about a subversive group of pranksters who create a satanic organization as a way to comment on religion and politics. I want to give a thanks to all the publicists who helped supply me with screeners and notes to compile this episode. They do hard work at festivals that rarely gets acknowledged. Thanks especially to the teams at Synetic, Susan Norgett Promotions, Sunshine Sachs, Brigade, DKC, Dish Communications, Valco Inc., Magnolia, Neon, HBO, and anyone I've forgotten. 
If you're in New York City, we invite you to attend the Pure Nonfiction screening series at IFC Center. Every Tuesday night in February and March, we show a documentary followed by a conversation with the filmmakers or other special guests. The series was previously called Stranger Than Fiction, but this year we've renamed it Pure Nonfiction. For more information, go to purenonfiction.net. Thanks to our team, series producer, Hannah Nordenswan, sound recordist, Khalil Bailey, and web designer, Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at THOM Powers. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.